You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Tim Shaughnessy, and I am going to be your host for today. As always, I want to remind everybody out there that we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, and there are a number of other podcasts to check out. And of course, if you want to reach us with any comments, questions, or concerns, uh, or just give us any feedback, you can always shoot us an email at semper.refermanda.radio at gmail.com. Or you can just do what everybody always seems to do, and that's find us on Facebook. We are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Facebook page. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into our topic for today. In light of the fact that it was recently October 31st, I have decided to address something that pertains to Roman Catholicism. The reason that I've chosen today to address something pertaining to Roman Catholicism is because I want to draw attention to that historic event which occurred nearly 500 years ago on October 31st, and which sparked the Protestant Reformation. I'm, of course, speaking of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg. Surprisingly, many people today, and evangelicals in the mainstream of Christianity, don't know that October 31st is often recognized as Reformation Day. Whether or not you claim the title of Reformed, there is much to rejoice in, and celebrate as believers because God used this single event to spark the Protestant Reformation. Even those who would not claim to be Reformed, they would not claim the title of Reformed, would more than likely embrace the five solas of the Reformation. Today, in honor of the Reformation, and in honor of Reformation Day, and and Martin Luther, and John Calvin, and all the other Reformers, all the other saints of old who boldly stood against the opposition of Rome, I want to tackle a question that I think is important and needs to be addressed. That is this. Are Roman Catholics Christians? Are Roman Catholics saved? You see, I believe that if we can answer this very simple question, it's a basic question, then I think that we can begin to understand why the protest against Rome is not over and why we should once again stand firm against all that Rome is and all that Rome teaches. If we can answer this question rightly, then 
I believe that we can begin to see that, that the Church of Rome is nothing less than a synagogue of Satan, which must be opposed by every Bible-believing Christian. Now, before I answer the question more plainly and directly than I already have, I want everyone to know that I'm not speaking out of hatred for those who are Roman Catholic. As a matter of fact, most of my extended family whom I love, they're Roman Catholic. I live in El Paso, Texas, and we have the highest percentage of Roman Catholics in the United States. We live across the border of Juarez, Mexico, and I have many dear friends who are Roman Catholic. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and we attended Mass every Sunday. If you don't know what the Mass is, then just stay tuned for more episodes. Hopefully, we'll, we'll get to that, but for now, just know that the Mass is a, is a ceremony that's completely blasphemous. But my point is this. This issue hits home for me. And my hope and my desire is that many would be saved out of the Church of Rome, which is, as I said before, nothing short of being a synagogue of Satan. It is a stronghold in which people are held captive. Paul warns us in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Unfortunately, Many people are held captive by Rome's empty deceits. They're held captive by human traditions, which are not according to Christ. All of the apparitions of Mother Mary were demonic and brought forth damnable heresies, which lead many people to hell. And we'll be getting into that hopefully in the future as well. So now, let me answer the question plainly and emphatically. Roman Catholics are not Christians. They are not saved. Now, as soon as I say this, I'm often met with several objections. Some will say, well, I know a Roman Catholic who's a Christian and they're saved. Let me say this in response to that. No, you don't. If that person is saved, then they're not a Roman Catholic. And if they're a Roman Catholic, then they're not saved. The two are mutually exclusive. In order for you to be a Roman Catholic, you must believe what the Church of Rome teaches about the doctrine of justification. If you reject the church's teaching on this issue, then you really are not a Roman Catholic. Let us remember that Martin Luther was excommunicated, that is, kicked out of the Church of Rome, for believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, for believing the very thing that made him a Christian. But I am sure that some will persist, some will continue to argue, and will say, well, they believe in Jesus, they affirm the Apostles' Creed, doesn't that mean that they are saved? No, it doesn't. The first thing that we need to point out in this discussion is that not everyone who says that they believe in Jesus is actually saved. In Matthew 7.21-23 we read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The first thing I want to point out in this passage is this. I want to point you to the double call, Lord, Lord. The double call speaks of familiarity. These people think that they know Jesus personally. Whenever a name in the Bible is repeated, we see this. It's to magnify the significance of the call and to communicate a knowing familiarity of that person. God calls out to Abraham, who is referred to as the friend of God, Abraham, Abraham, in Genesis 22.11. 
God calls out to Israel by his birth name, Jacob, Jacob. Now, what's interesting about this is that he calls out to Israel as an old man, but he calls out to him by his birth name. Every, every episode, I introduce myself as Tim Shaughnessy. Now, if you know me personally, if you, if you uh, know me better than that, you would know that my first name is actually Joseph. So, when God calls Israel by his birth name, this communicates familiarity, this communicates intimacy of friendship. And you can compare Genesis 46, verse 2, and you can also see Genesis 35, verse 9 through 15 for that. When God likewise spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he calls out to Moses, 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 in Exodus 3, 4. When Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, he was instead to be redeemed and made a friend of God by coming to faith in Christ, who appeared to him and called out to him, Saul, Saul. So, these people whom Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 7, verse 21, who call out to him, Lord, Lord, they think that they know him. They think that they have a relationship with him. They, they think that they are familiar with him. But tragically, he declares back to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, my question is this. Are you willing to examine yourself in the light of Scripture and ask whether or not this could be you? You see, we live in a culture that is full of people who are entitled, who feel entitled, who are self-righteous, who are more concerned with their self-esteem than anything else. At this point, I'm reminded of a sermon that Paul Washer, uh, that, that actually made Paul Washer famous. A number of years ago, he was speaking at a youth conference in which he was confronting the hypocrisy of the American evangelical church, which oftentimes looks more like the world and the culture rather than a people group set apart for God. At a certain moment, the crowd of youth began to applaud and cheer, to which Pastor Washer responded, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. See, this, this pertains to you. And you can't even see that. At this point, you could almost feel the rebuke. It was jolting and sobering. Truth be told, though, most of us, actually all of us, apart from the inner working of the Holy Spirit, which brings about a sense of personal conviction, will have a tendency to think this way, will have a tendency to respond this way, to think that we're doing just fine, whatever's being said, that doesn't apply to me, that couldn't possibly be me. Well, let us look at two examples in Scripture, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and compare that to the disciples. Let us be like the disciples, of course, with the exception of Judas, rather than the Pharisees and Sadducees who presume upon themselves God's favor because of their heritage. To observe this contrast between the disciples and the Pharisees and Sadducees, let us compare two passages in Matthew. First, in Matthew 26, verses 20-23, we read of, of an account at the Last Supper right before Jesus was to be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver by Judas. Beginning in verse 20, we read, When it was evening, he being Jesus, reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And of course, we, we know that this was Judas who went out from them. But here, here's the takeaway. Rather than looking around at the table... At the others, the disciples looked inwardly at themselves. Rather than thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to, 
They considered their own fallible nature and sought after the Lord to question whether or not they could be the betrayer. This response by the disciples stands in stark contrast to what we find as the response of many professing Christians in churches today. The pastor ushers forth a call of repentance. He talks about sin. He talks about holiness. He laments over the cultural shift toward ungodliness. And many Christians, unfortunately, look outward at other people rather than looking inward to ask themselves, Is it I, Lord? Could he be talking about me? They, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees whom John the Baptist rebuked, find refuge in something other than Christ. In Matthew 7, uh, sorry, in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 9, we read, But when he, being John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We should never presume to say to ourselves, I was raised in a Christian home, or I go to a Christian church every Sunday, or I was I accepted Jesus Christ into my heart when I was a youth. That's not even biblical. Or I've been baptized. And, and say all of these things and fail to examine ourselves in the light of Scripture. So let us therefore be like the disciples when we read the words of Jesus in Matthew 7:21. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let us now ask, while there's still time, is it I, Lord? Could I be one of those many people? And if that is us, let us turn to Christ today and find our refuge in him alone. This is my plea for my Catholic friends. Consider this, that this might be you on that dreadful day. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually warning you on the authority of Scripture alone that if you abide in the Roman Catholic teaching, then this will be you. But how can I say such a thing? This is simply awful. Well, let's examine what Rome teaches about salvation and compare that to what the Bible says and ask the most important question a person will ever have to face. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, How can a sinner, an unjust person, ever withstand the judgment of a holy and just God? As the psalmist puts it, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Psalms 130 verse 3. In order for a person to ever stand in the presence of God, they must first be justified. That is, they must be made righteous. And the Bible says that, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. He cannot, he, he cannot tolerate sin. Now we must consider how Rome answers this question and ask how the scriptures answer this question. Historically, the Protestant Reformation has been explained by describing its material cause and its formal cause. The material cause was the dispute over the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide, while the formal cause was the dispute over biblical authority, sola scriptura. While the latter is the basis on which we stand to defend the former, for it was sola scriptura that became the battle cry for the Protestants, and while it is of utmost importance, we are going to instead focus our attention on the former, that is the material cause, the dispute over the issue of justification by faith alone. The doctrine of justification must be the central affirmation of all Christians. As Martin Luther famously said, it is the head and cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. 
and without it the Church of God cannot exist even for an hour. It was during the Protestant Reformation that, that Martin Luther also said that this is the article with and by which the Church stands, without which it falls. So, what does Rome teach about justification? What does it say about how a person is to be made right before God? The process of justification that Rome puts forward is rather complex. However, we'll just simplify it. The process of justification for Roman Catholics begins at baptism. The Roman Catholic Church teaches as dogma that justification is conferred through her sacraments, and that this consists of inner righteousness whereby a man, it is stated, becomes just or righteous within himself. R.C. Sproul writes, Baptism is the instrumental cause of justification. It is by this sacrament that the grace of Christ's righteousness is infused into the soul. The baptized person is cleansed of original sin and is now in a state of grace whereby he is able to cooperate and is sent to the infused grace in order that he might become righteous. So at baptism, grace is infused to the person, and then they must cooperate with that grace and work to earn their righteousness. But this grace is not permanent, and it can actually be lost by the committing of a mortal sin. If this happens, and the person commits a mortal sin, then they may be restored to the state of grace by a sacrament of penance, after which they may once again attempt to earn their justification or salvation. It's at this point that we need to recognize that Rome does not teach that a person is justified by works alone, that is, without faith and without grace. The Catholic Church teaches that faith, grace, and Christ are all necessary conditions for the sinner's justification. The key difference between Rome's teaching and the Protestant's view is that these conditions are necessary but never sufficient. According to Rome, grace is necessary, faith is necessary, and Christ's sacrifice on the cross was necessary, but that is not enough. Merit that is obtained by the sinner through good works must be added to faith and grace and ultimately added to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, let us contrast this with what the Bible teaches and ask the question whether or not works can be added to faith for the sinner's justification. Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. We read in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in Romans chapter 4, 1 through 5, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I want to highlight verse 4 from, from Romans chapter 4, which again reads, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. His wages, what he earns by his work, is not counted as a gift. This is simple. When someone works for something, you pay them. Their, their work is not a gift. You're not giving them a gift. 
If then we obtain justification and salvation as Rome teaches, by merit which is gained through our good works and added to faith, then we have something to boast in, and our salvation cannot ultimately be a gift of God, but it can be counted as our due wage. However, Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 9 reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul asks in Romans 3.27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Again in verse 5, in, in, in Romans 4, it says, And to the one who does not work, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Quite correctly then, Martin Luther, as well as all of the other Protestant reformers, recognize that on the basis of Scripture alone, that a person is justified by faith alone in Christ alone. The Church of Rome, however, condemns the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. This was done at the Council of Trent, and it needs to be pointed out that present-day dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, present-day, upholds the teaching of the Council of Trent. But it not only upholds it, it also declares that such councils are infallible. The Council of Trent proclaims the following curse in Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that this is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the actions of his own will, let him be anathema. It's Council of Trent 1547. By condemning the doctrine of justification by faith alone, Rome has instead condemned herself. But we need to recognize something very important. This, this, is, this is really, really important. Rome's teaching on the issue of justification is not established without an appeal to Scripture. Dr. Robert Raymond points out in his book, A New Systematic Theology of the Christian Faith, on page 748, it has been urged by Roman Catholic apologists and, and you can see this in, uh, in the Council of Trent, the 6th session, chapters 7 through 10. It has been urged by the Roman Catholic apologists that James 2, 14 through 26, is a corrective to the Protestant teaching that justification is through faith alone, completely apart from works. For it expressly declares a man is justified by works not and not by faith alone. That's in James 2, verse 24. On the surface... And at a first glance, this proof text appears to be a death blow to Martin Luther and, and John Calvin and, and the Protestants and uh, their position that a person is justified by faith alone. But let us not be troubled and let us remember something very important, that Satan will use scripture to lead people astray. Now, that sounds crazy, I, I know. But we, we need to remember that the devil came and tempted Jesus, and when he did, he used scripture in order that he might lead him astray. The Christian must be aware of this tactic used by Satan, and remember that he is a liar, and that he is a father of lies, as it says in John 8.44. As believers, we are not to be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. In Matthew chapter 4, we read of the temptation of Jesus while he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of, of that time in the wilderness, Satan came to tempt him, and he tempts him three times. But it was the second temptation that Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 4, we read, 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the, of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan tempted Jesus three times. But it was this temptation, the second temptation, that Satan quoted scripture from Psalms 91 verses 11 through 12. This is a very common tactic used to deceive people among false teachers and false religions. That is to twist God's word or to twist the meaning of God's word. It is important, it is very important to recognize that Satan will either twist God's word itself or he will twist its meaning. In Genesis, when Satan tempted Eve, he twisted God's word. He changed it. And when he tempted Jesus, he twisted its meaning. In Genesis 2.16, God said to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. This was the word of the Lord to Adam. It was, it was the word of God. And it was Adam's responsibility to make it known to his wife. It was his task to keep her and to guard her in the light of God's word. However, we read in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 3 of the temptation. In verse 1, we see that Satan came to Eve and he said to her, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice first that Satan has twisted God's word by misquoting it. For God did not say that they could not eat of any tree in the garden. While Eve corrected the devil on this point, it is clear from her response that she herself did not rightly know the word of the Lord, the word of God. Starting in verse 2, we read, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. It was never the command of the Lord that you should not touch the tree lest you die, but that you should not eat of its fruit lest you die. And perhaps Eve may have even been emboldened when she first touched the fruit to pick it from the tree and saw that nothing had happened to her. But we need to recognize this. Adam and Eve did not hide the word of the Lord in their hearts as they should have, for Eve did not know it accurately. Adam remained silent, and neither of them believed it. However, we see that Satan strengthens his cunning and deceitful tactic when he comes to tempt Jesus. He does this by quoting scripture accurately, but this time he merely seeks to twist its proper application. He does this subtly because Christ, unlike Adam and Eve, knew and believed the word of God. While it is important to know and understand this tactic of the devil to mishandle God's word in order that he might deceive people, it is equally and vitally important to also recognize how our master, Jesus Christ, responds to this abuse of the word of God. Jesus corrected the error with scripture. As a matter of fact, we see that Jesus quoted scripture to Satan in all three of the temptations. In each of his responses, Jesus begins by saying, for it is written. And then he quotes scripture from the Old Testament. I believe it's Deuteronomy. We therefore must not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil, and we must likewise use the apologetic that Jesus himself used. So let us return to the passage in James and correct the satanic deception that is taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Beginning in verse 14 of James chapter 2, we read, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your works apart from your faith, and I will show you my works by my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that's James 2 verses 14 through 26. So let's take a closer look at James 2.24 and compare that to Romans 3.28. James 2.24 reads again, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In Romans 3.28 reads, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So both Paul and James are speaking of being justified, but we have to ask the question, justified in what sense? James is referring to justification with regards to one's profession of faith being justified or validated, while Paul is referring to justification with regards to one being justified or made righteous before God. James is answering the question, how does one justify their profession of faith? While Paul is answering the question, how does one stand justified before God? The Reformers correctly recognize, on the basis of Scripture alone, that one is justified by faith alone. Again, we point back to Romans 4.5. And to the one who does not work, that is, work for merit, that is, work for salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here we notice that righteousness unto salvation comes by faith, not by works. So Paul condemns works which are added to faith, while James commends works which are produced by faith. In its simplest comparison, James is addressing how a person can justify their profession of faith while Paul is addressing how one can stand justified before God. We have to be discerning here, because our salvation does not rest on what we do, but rather it rests entirely on what Christ has done for us. For this is what the Bible plainly teaches. James asks the question in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Someone says he has faith, but he does not have works. This is the issue James is confronting. If someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, then he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He is a false convert, a hypocrite, someone who is self-deceived. James is asking the question, what good is that profession of faith? Can that profession of faith, when someone says that he has faith, can that save him? The answer is no, because that is merely a false profession of faith. It's not a true and living faith. This is why James says in verse 17, So also faith by itself. If it does not have works, is dead. See, R.C. Sproul puts it this way. We are saved by faith alone, 
but not a faith that is alone. A true and living faith will necessarily manifest itself in works. This is why in verse 18 of James chapter 2 we read, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This could not be any more plain, and, and I would encourage everybody to, to really dig deep into, into these passages and to study them and meditate on them. James issues a challenge that cannot be met. Show me your faith apart from works. You see, if, if faith necessarily manifests itself in works, then it is impossible for a person to show their faith apart from works. On the contrary, James seeks to demonstrate or to show his faith by his works. Robert Raymond, in his uh, book, A New Systematic uh, Theology for the Christian Faith, puts it this way, Whereas Paul is concerned with the question of how a man may achieve right standing before God, and turns to Genesis 15, verse 6, to find his answer, James is concerned with the question of how a man is to demonstrate that he is actually justified before God, and that he has true faith. And he turns to Genesis 22, verses 9-10, through 10, as a probative fulfillment of Genesis 15, 6, to find his answer. The mistake then is this. It's to add works, which are merely a demonstration of faith, to the gospel. This is the mistake the Galatian church made. They had allowed the Judaizers to come in and pervert the gospel. What they were saying was that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And Paul confronts this head-on right at the beginning of chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Galatians, uh, starting in verse 6, we read, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I have said it before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. So, what is the result of accepting this false gospel? The Judaizers came in and they said, believe in Jesus Christ, but they also added circumcision to that. They said, and we see this. We see this happen with baptism. That's a whole other a whole other issue. But they're adding circumcision to the gospel. So, what is what, what is the result of accepting this false gospel? This is not a gospel at all. The result is, as Paul says, you are deserting him. You're deserting Christ. In verse six, he says you're deserting him, and he says that this is not another gospel at all. Paul gives us the answer to this in Galatians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 2, it says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We need to point out a, a few things here. He says if you accept this gospel of, of uh, this false gospel that you're saved by Christ and you're saved by circumcision, that you are obligated to keep the whole law. He says, you are severed from Christ. You are cut off from Christ. And we know from Acts 4.12 that there's no other name under heaven given uh, to men by which we must be saved. So if you're severed off from Christ, then you have no salvation. You who would be justified by obedience to the law. He says, you have fallen away from grace. And as we read in Ephesians 2, verse 8, it is by grace alone that you're saved. 
You see, if we interpret James chapter 2 the way that Rome teaches, then we're left with a contradiction in Scripture, and that cannot stand. Now, there's, there's a counter-argument. Perhaps Rome's doctrine can be mended and the apparent contradiction alleviated by distinguishing the sense in which Paul and James speak of works. You see, in Romans 3.28, Paul expressly refers to works of the law, while James 2.24 refers only to works. So, could it then be that James is speaking of being justified in the same sense in which Paul is speaking of being justified, and that they are, that they are speaking of works in a different sense? This may appear to work in Rome's favor. That is until you see the fatal flaw. The good works to which James refers are necessarily in obedience to the law. This is why this won't work. Any good works and any noble deed a person can do is necessarily in accordance with the two greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And with the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Furthermore, Rome's teaching on this would contradict Ephesians 2 verse 8, which simply refers to works, not works of the law explicitly. So when the devil cites James 2.24 and, and tells you that you have to work for your salvation and add that to Christ's finished work on the cross, we follow the example of our king and cite Romans 3.28, Romans 4 verses 1 through 5, Galatians 2 verse 16, Ephesians 2 verse 8, and many other passages of scripture which I, I just simply did not get to. So to my Catholic friends and family, I pray that you will look at the scriptures. I, I pray that you will read the Bible for yourself and find out if these things are so. Look up these passages. If not, then you will be standing in the place of those who call out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, only to hear Jesus' reply, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But perhaps... You're, you're, you're reading Matthew 7, verses 21, and you might be thinking that it's the ones who do the will of the Father who enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew 7, verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, I encourage you not to allow Satan to twist the meaning of this passage and cause you to think once again that your salvation, your entering the kingdom of God, depends on works. It depends on merit. We must ask the question, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? For this, we'll turn to John 6.40, which reads, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who, who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. We go up to verse 28 through 29, we read, of the same chapter, John 6, we read, Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they asked the question, What, what, must we, what are the works of God that, that God requires? And Jesus said, Believe in him whom he sent. You see, this judgment in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, this judgment is absolutely certain. So, what will be your defense? Will you be like those whom he casts out of his presence because you make an appeal to your good deeds? 
Will you say I have done many wonderful works in your name, only to be cast out? Or will you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Will you place your faith in him alone for your salvation? This is my prayer for my Catholic friends, my Roman Catholic friends. I know that that this doesn't cover every single issue. We still need to talk about Mother Mary. We still need to talk about the Mass. And I'm hoping that we can address these other issues in the future. But for now, on the issue of justification by faith alone, I want to encourage you to go to God's Word, to read this for yourself, that a man is justified, made righteous, on the, on the merit of Christ alone. And that all you have to do is believe in Christ and you will be saved. So, I want to thank you for tuning in to Semper Reformanda Radio. I want to also say, if, if you, we, we always say this, if you want to email us, if you have any questions or concerns or uh, about what we say, you can email us at semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. And with that, I want to thank you again. I hope everybody out there has a blessed week. God bless, and we'll catch you next time.